Hans Berger was born on Wednesday, May 21st, 1873, in the small German town of Neusis. As a kid, Berger dreamed of being an astronomer. He even enrolled in the mathematics program at the Friedrich Schiller University in Jena, Germany in 1892. But something was amiss for Berger, and he left the school after just one semester. After giving up on his dreams to study the stars, Berger needed to find a new course. He signed up to join the German cavalry. He was 19 years old, but his new course would not be that of a career soldier. During a training exercise, Berger was thrown from his horse, crashing to the dirt and landing in the path of a charging horse. The rider halted his horse, sparing Berger his life, but the near miss would set Berger down a new and unusual path. See, as Berger lay on the ground watching the horse bearing down on him, his mind could think of only one thing, his imminent death. Berger was terrified. In that same moment, several miles away, it seems his sister, with whom Berger was very close, had a similar feeling of dread. So the story goes, she was so worried that something had happened to her brother that she insisted the family send him a telegram immediately. And so for the first time since he had joined the cavalry, Berger's father sent him a message asking, on his sister's behalf, whether or not he was okay. Of course, Berger was fine although he was still a little jarred from the experience. Perhaps it was an odd moment of chance, perhaps it was just a coincidence, or a little bit of serendipity, considering Berger had survived the event to receive the letter from his family, saying they were worried for his safety. For Berger, it was a revelation. This is incredible. His sister had felt his fear and knew he was in mortal danger, almost as if he had called out to her for help from across the great distance between them. For Berger, this wasn't merely a coincidence. It was a sign that humans possess a special kind of telepathic ability. Introducing Nasal High Flow Therapy from Massimo. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases at high flow rates through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients suffering from respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Visit Massimo.com slash soft flow to learn more. Berger was convinced by his near-fatal experience in the military and by his sister's letter that humans were capable of communicating in ways that had not yet been measured. He believed it so strongly that he reshaped his career as a scientist with the goal of proving this ability existed and that he had tapped into it. So Berger decided to return to the University of Vienna this time to study psychiatry and neurology. He received a medical degree in 1897 and immediately started working at the university's clinic, 
eventually becoming the head of that clinic. Of course, Berger's desire to unlock the mystery of telepathy fell short. He never found any evidence that telepathy was possible. However, in his long career of research and development, Berger happened upon one particularly interesting idea. By the early 1920s, Berger's work had led him to explore the electrical activity found in the human brain. In his attempt to find the answers about telepathy, Berger emerged as an expert in this exciting new field of study. And although he was considered by many of his German contemporaries to be a bit of a quack, he set out to develop a way to measure the human brain's electrical activity. So it was with little fanfare on Sunday, July 6, 1924, during the neurosurgery of a 17-year-old boy, that Berger performed the first ever electroencephalography, better known today as the EEG. His early tests on human patients, using a device he named the electroencephalogram, were conducted by injecting Novocaine into a patient's scalp, then implanting electrodes into the periosteum of the patient's skull. These electrodes then transmitted complex electrical signals that were being emitted within the brain to Berger's electroencephalogram, which would capture, record, and display those signals on paper in wavy lines for interpretation. The German scientists found that the changes in the electrical potential connected with the human brain activity may be magnified by running them through a vacuum tube amplifying system, similar to that used in radios, and then using the enhanced current to operate the oscillograph, which writes in light on the photograph a wavy line corresponding to the fluctuations of electricity in the brain. After years of experimentation, Berger's unique innovation, which he originally developed to solve the mystery of telepathy, finally started to make waves around the scientific community. Over the decades, the EEG would be used to identify and study human brain conditions that would previously have been unimaginable. In fact, the discovery of the EEG was regarded by many as the most remarkable and surprising development ever made in clinical neurology. By the mid-1930s, the EEG's popularity surged as the research tool of choice for studying a wide range of conditions or curiosities, including brain tumors, strokes, epileptic seizures, sleep disorders, and even trying to understand consciousness. Each new study revealed incredible new insights into the human brain. And one particular study, conducted by the research trio of Frederick Gibbs, Erna Gibbs, and William Lennox, demonstrated the activity of a patient sedated with ether anesthesia for the first time. See, Gibbs, Gibbs, and Lennox found that increasing the dose of ether to a patient would lead to systematic changes in their arousal level based on the reading from the EEG. And they recorded those findings in the 1937 paper entitled Effects on the Electroencephalogram of Certain Drugs Which Influence Nervous Activity, which contained an interesting statement about the clinical potential of this new device. A practical application of these observations might be the use of electroencephalogram as a measure of the depth of anesthesia. Years after the development of the EEG 
and decades after the discovery of ether anesthesia, scientists finally found a way to precisely measure a patient's depth of sedation. But that discovery by Gibbs, Gibbs, and Lennox was only the beginning of a new chapter in the progress for anesthesia. And it is a chapter we are still writing today. Introducing Nasal High Flow Therapy from Massimo. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases at high flow rates through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients suffering from respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Visit Massimo.com slash soft flow to learn more. Welcome to the fourth and final episode of this season of Anesthesiology News Presents, The Etherist. We set out at the beginning of this season to retell the story of the origins of anesthesia use in modern medicine, with a slight twist of coloring in the scientific details those early pioneers couldn't have yet known. Our goal was to revisit the history of the specialty of anesthesiology, but also to understand just how far we've come since Ether Day and the discovery of chloroform, with the hope that we might find a new appreciation for that 175-year-long journey. So for this final episode, we will turn our focus not to the past or the future, but to the part of the story we are in at this moment, to see what more can be done with our current scientific knowledge and how we can use it to shape the future of anesthesia use. We have seen over the first three episodes how the pioneers of anesthesia were able to successfully use drugs like ether and chloroform without the benefit of the knowledge we have today. And in that spirit, what might we be missing out on today that could help improve the delivery of modern-day anesthesia? In this episode, we will explore the research insights that could help reshape anesthesia care and our understanding of it, as another chapter in the story of the history of anesthesia unfolds. I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is Anesthesiology News Presents The Etherist, Season 3, Episode 4, The Next Chapter of Anesthesiology. Sponsored by Massimo and Medtronic. Anesthesia use began over 175 years ago, first by Crawford Long in Jefferson, Georgia, then by William Morton in the Ether Dome. It started as a simple practice with some ether on a handkerchief or in a glass jar, but quickly became a worldwide phenomenon with well-researched standards of practice and ever-evolving approaches. Eventually, anesthesiologists developed complex ways to monitor sedated patients, and precise ways to measure the proper dose of anesthesia. And on and on, the progress continued for nearly two centuries. And yet, through all of those advances in anesthesia drugs and practice standards and patient safety, we never truly unraveled the mystery of exactly how anesthesia works the way it does. Right, right. And, and we still don't really understand the mechanism of action of general anesthesia. This is Dr. Catherine McGoldrick again. We understand some of the physiologic consequences in terms of, of 
the circulation and blood pressure and things like that, respiration, but what it's doing to the brain, we, 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 still, we still don't know. That is, until very recently. Now there is a growing body of research deciphering the code of anesthesia use and the human brain, and many of those insights are being uncovered by monitoring these electrical brain patterns. Simply put, anesthetics produce unconsciousness by disrupting the electrical connections between the thinking or remembering brain, the cortex, and the feeling or sensing parts of the brain, the limbic system. This is Dr. Baron Metzigen, and he points out that Dr. Emery Brown is at the forefront of this research. This is Emery's work. So all of this works together. There are so many different neural circuits that are invested in keeping us awake, but also allowing us to experience restorative sleep, that there's many different avenues that Drugs can intersect to cause unconsciousness. But they all do what I just described. Research, like Dr. Brown's, has looked into all the ways that anesthesia disrupts consciousness, which can also disrupt the old way of thinking about how anesthesia works. The important thing is that there is no unitary theory of anesthesia. We believed in the past that, you know, volatile anesthetics in trying to explain how they worked that this was this lipid-soluble theory that because it was lipid-soluble, Mayer-Overton hypothesis was, they studied it in tadpoles, that because anesthetics were lipid-soluble, directly correlated with this would be anesthetic depth or effect. We now know that there are so many different circuits that are involved, and there are different pathways to providing what we experience or encounter as general anesthesia, you see. So it's very complex and there's many avenues to getting there. Like so much of anesthesia history, anesthesia providers operated with limited or even incorrect theories about why the drugs they were using worked. In the case of the lipid-soluble theory, it wasn't until the availability of electroencephalography that a more complete picture of anesthesia's effects on the brain could be uncovered. In fact, the EEG has helped a great deal in advancing our understanding of anesthesia. The EEG has been used extensively in research by Dr. Brown to evaluate the brain patterns of patients in three distinct states, sleep, coma, and sedated. And he has shown that these three states are in fact very different. Dr. Brown will tell you, uh, sleep is not anesthesia. Anesthesia is chemically induced coma. A person's brain while under sedation produces distinct wave patterns on the EEG, which can then be used to determine the patient's depth of anesthesia. The EEG is profoundly useful for anesthesiologists not just as a research tool, but as a clinical one as well. But using the EEG in this way is not a commonly used practice today. In that way, the EEG mirrors the story of the first anesthesia drugs. In 1799, Humphrey Davy discovered the potential of nitrous oxide, a story we covered in the prologue of this series. As nitrous oxide in its intensive operation appears capable of destroying physical pain, it may be used with advantage during surgical operation. But it was nearly 50 years later, in 1846, that Morton finally demonstrated the surgical potential of ether anesthesia. Similarly, in 1937, Gibbs, Gibbs, and Lennox, 
identified the potential of the EEG as a way to monitor depth of anesthesia. Nearly 80 years later, in 2011, researchers led by Dr. Brown were finally able to describe how anesthetic actions on specific molecular targets could lead to altered states of arousal, and therefore taking the first step toward realizing the EEG's true potential in anesthesia monitoring. It has taken several decades for those prophetic words of Gibbs, Gibbs, and Lennox to transform into practice. This delay was in part due to the fact that the prevailing theory of anesthetic mechanisms was related to lipid solubility. In fact, the concept that anesthetics bind to specific molecular targets was not promoted until the 1980s. In more recent years, researchers have learned much more about how altered states of arousal can be affected by anesthetics and how those states are related to EEG activity. And because of those breakthroughs, researchers can identify a connection between EEG signatures, anesthetic states, and the actions of the drugs at specific molecular targets. And many of these advances started with that 2011 breakthrough by Dr. Brown and his team. I would say my real aha moment came probably about 10 years ago because it was, in the, like, it was the fall of 2011 this is Dr. Emery Brown again. And we had just gotten uh, sort of new EEG monitors in our ORs a few months before. And so I just set, a, set out to just use them on every patient every time I did a case to use the EEG. And, um, and because of the scheduling in the operating room, I wasn't on my regular service. I was moved around across various different services over the next six weeks. So September, so on through October, middle of October about. Now, the, the bit of serendipity that occurred as a consequence of that was I started, I used different drugs because different surgeries required sort of different combinations of anesthetics or what have you. And I may probably experimented with some combinations too. But within six weeks, I had, I had seen and figured out all the patterns of the major drugs which we'd used. I know this distinctly because I was able to give a lecture on on October 29th. So that was a real aha moment. And what it, what it, what it made clear to me was that drugs in the same class had the same signatures. I'd never said that before. Right. And then the signatures that we were seeing matched up with like the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, which we, which I'd written about a, a few years before, like in 2010, we wrote a review article for the New England Journal sort of explaining the pathways of most of the major anesthetics. And so we could use those to start to explain the dynamics that we were seeing. So being able to put those two together, I consider to be like, you know, one of the aha moments. Dr. Brown's aha moment in the fall of 2011 was the beginning of a decade of robust research on anesthetic states, from the mechanism that created them to the ways that EEG can be used to monitor them more closely. He has published hundreds of papers on these topics, and it was this use of EEG, which was originally suggested almost 80 years earlier, that allowed Dr. Brown to push the field of anesthesiology forward. That to be a fairly, a fairly prescient statement. Now, you know, you know, so us coming along, you know, several years later. But what happened was, is that nobody paid attention to that work as far as thinking of it as a way to think about mechanism. Because the mechanisms, you know, the the way that anesthetics were supposed to work up until 
I, I think thinking was up until about the early part of the eighties was that sort of the lipid theory that they anesthetics intercalated intercalated into lipid bilayers. They altered the lipid membranes in neurons or neurons or other cells, and as a consequence, they shut off brain activity. And what was shown in the in the early eighties was that these drugs acted, they actually had specific targets. So, so our thinking built on that. The drugs have these specific targets. So, but just telling you that it binds to a benzodiazepine receptor, GABA receptor, or blocks an NMDA receptor, that doesn't tell you how the behavior comes about. The behavior is a circuit phenomenon. So you have to figure out what circuits are being acted on in order to you know, produce these sorts of, uh, you know, these sorts of changes. And that's what, that's what we've been concentrating on. But how can these recent breakthroughs be implemented in practice? For starters, Dr. Brown thinks that being more mindful of neuroscience can help unlock a better approach to anesthesia use. And, And I'm the first to say we haven't answered all the questions and there's still more to, there's still a lot more to do. But thinking of the, 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 the administering of anesthesia from a neuroscience perspective, helps you understand like a lot of the phenomena that we, you know, sort of like, like, like take for granted. And it also allows us to have more principled ways for selecting drug combinations and also administering them. And, and I think that, you know, as opposed to using conventions, things like minimal alveolar concentration and see right there, that's the concentration of drug in the lung. Then there's an inference that that's the same concentration that's in the brain. But with, so that might be the same concentration. That concentration for me might make me more profoundly anesthetized compared to, to you. And so there are adjustments of these things for age, but we could actually see that directly with the EEG. So as opposed to practicing by convention, if you would, this allows us to practice in a much more personalized way for each patient. The EEG offers a unique window into a patient's status. It has the potential to be a tool that allows for precise insights into a patient's depth of anesthesia. And Dr. Brown believes that all anesthesiologists should become more familiar with how to use them in the clinical setting. I, I think that's I think that's exactly what they should do. I mean, we can have things that aid that, that you know help emphasize certain features of it. But the EEG under anesthesia is the strongest EEG signal there is. It's because one of the things, because the oscillations are generated by getting large parts of the brain to act in concert. And to give you some idea, our oscillations, as we're talking here now, let's say somewhere between about five to 10 microvolts. Once, you know, we're anesthetized, they're between 20 to 50 microvolts, or in kids, maybe as high as a thousand microvolts. And they're highly systematic, highly organized. And the other thing is, For all the other things that the EEG is used for, the reason I say the anesthesia has the highest signal-to-noise ratio is that the um, once you're under anesthesia, you're not moving, so you don't have movement artifacts like you have in all these other situations. So, can anesthesiologists use this to make reliable inferences? They certainly can, and I think that, and I think it's a really missed opportunity because it's the strongest EEG signal there is. For Dr. Brown, it isn't just about adding yet another tool to the anesthesiologist armamentarium. It is more about the incredible potential of combining anesthesia care and the EEG. It is almost as if the EEG was designed specifically to assist in the delivery of anesthesia. 
Anesthesia delivery can be done more precisely when monitored with the EEG, and the EEG signal is never stronger than when it is used on a person who is sedated. If this sounds too good to be true, it is only because, like the early pioneers of ether anesthesia, the true potential of EEG has not been fully realized just yet. I think in many respects, the EEG has gotten a bad name because um, beginning in the 90s, monitors were produced that took the EEG and processed it and generated, you know, a number. And then the out, you're told that keeping this number with the, between certain values, no matter what anesthetic you're using, is sufficient to, to you know, basically administer anesthesia. No explanation for how the algorithm is produced or how the numbers are generated. And so that works up to a certain point because basically you could, you could roughly say that as long as you see slow oscillations, you could just calculate the amount of slow oscillation power and just say if that goes down, you know, as that increases or increases, then someone's getting more and more anesthetized. But what it did, it, it simplified things too much. And then people started to see cases where it didn't work. Three important cases. It doesn't work very well in kids. It doesn't work when you give ketamine. And a drug like dexmedetomidine, which produces slow oscillations, people can be aroused. They can be waken up. So that's why what we've come to appreciate is you have to think about the neuro, the neuro mechanism towards the oscillation being generated. And then they change systematically the drug class. So you'd never be fooled by propofol slow oscillation and, and dexmedetomidine slow oscillation, because what you have to do is think of the drug class that, you know, you're, that you're measuring the oscillations from, the drug dose and the age of the patient. So if you now take that information and don't project it onto just a single index, but view it by reading the EEG in the context of these four things, now you have a more informed way of making inference about someone's anesthetic state. So what is the solution? Well, Dr. Brown has a simple idea for how to take the first step towards a future of anesthesia with more EEG monitoring. And that is just to start to appreciate the potential that exists. Yeah, I think I'd like my colleagues to appreciate better. And that the EEG, if used in the way that we're suggesting, taking into account you know, these three or four conditions, can be highly informative of a, of a patient's you know, state under anesthesia. And we should and I think the more that we're able to use it that way, we'll, we'll develop rapidly a collective wisdom about, you know, using the EEG in this way. But if we don't do that, it won't happen. That is it. Like so many innovations in anesthesia before, the EEG has a chance to greatly improve the delivery of anesthesia care to patients. And like so many innovations before, the EEG has been around waiting for the opportunity to have its full potential realized. While it is hard to say what the next great discovery for anesthesia care is, this one device might offer a slight improvement that could have an outsized impact on the future of the specialty. Whether the EEG is the next big thing in anesthesia practice or not, Dr. Brown has one final thought that transcends any one tool or drug. It's a thought that has driven all of the stories we have told this season. Put simply, there's always a better answer to the problem than the one that we have now. I don't think it's as broadly appreciated as, uh, as, 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 as it should be. I mean, they, I, I don't think the bulk of anesthesiologists think about it the way I just, you know, just described it to you because 
this is something which is obvious to me because I use the EEG on all my patients and I, and it, it, it is just like amazing to watch when you administer the drugs and you just see the oscillations all of a sudden within like five, within 10 seconds, roughly, just go into this state. And then I, I think if more anesthesiologists paid attention to this and sort of, you know, you know, made it part of their practice to use the EG in this way, I think they'd, be, they'd become convinced. We began this journey by retelling the origin story of anesthesia use. We revisited these classic tales with the added benefit of hindsight, as well as nearly two centuries of clinical advances. The development of nitrous oxide, thin ether, and chloroform were full of chance and luck, but also perseverance and determination. The people of these stories, Davy, Long, Morton, Young, and Snow, are now icons of the dawn of modern medicine, and they are just a few of many more innovators and pioneers in the fields of anesthesiology and surgery. This season of the Etherist could not cover every aspect of these stories, just like it could not cover every aspect of the incredible volume of new research that is being conducted in our own time. The stories of Morton's intrepidness and Young's brashness and Snow's foresight have all laid the foundation for the spirit of this profession. But their stories are also just chapters in a much larger story of medical progress. It is our story too. So while this season of the Etheris is coming to a close, the story of anesthesia continues. And so does the ongoing push for progress. Not just for the sake of progress, but for the sake of future patients. The question now is who will help drive that progress forward? What will the next great innovation in anesthesia be? And ultimately, what will be the next chapter in the story of anesthesiology? Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this season of The Etherist, I would like to invite you to rate and review the show. And if you are so inclined, please share us with your colleagues too. We would really appreciate it. If you are interested in learning more about the stories we told this season, you can find links to the histories and research that made up the core of this season in our show notes. And finally, thank you for joining us on this journey. This season of The Etherist was created by me, Michael DePoe Wilson, along with James Pruden, our editorial director. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music comes from Blue Dot Studios. A special thank you to our wonderful voice actors, Danielle DePoe Wilson and James Pruden. The rest of our team includes Richard Tordo, Justin Kabat, Blake Dennis, Kwang Yee Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, Kristen Janicone, Sam Steinfeld, and Lucia Scanlon, who all contributed greatly to the making of the Etherist. And a special thank you to our sponsors, Massimo and Medtronic. Thanks for listening.